again, good morning, everybody. Last week we saw the, we looked at the arrest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in chapter 18 of John, if you guys want to turn there, John chapter 18. We talked a little bit about how the gospel accounts can differ, um, and, and, and these were, sometimes there's details that are a little bit different, and there were details that John adds to his account that differ from the other gospels. For example, when the group has come to arrest Jesus, um, and Jesus asks, or they ask which one of them is Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus steps forward and he, he says, I am he. And, and this is interesting how he phrases this, because in the Greek, that's not normally how you would say that. Um, in the Greek, it's ego emi is what he says, but typically you would say emi, because the pronoun is, is implied, the I and the he are implied. And so um, we know that this is an interesting way to say this, and, and that he's saying this on purpose because he's actually revealing himself as divine. And we know that because of what happens next. In, in verse 6, it says, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. God is so powerful then what, that when he reveals just even a glimpse of himself, it causes men to fall to the ground. And so that's one detail that the other gospels don't mention. Another is telling us that Peter was the one who cut off the servant's ear. Um, the other gospels don't name Peter. And we're not told that. Uh, we're also not told the name of the servant uh, who, don't, who John does tell us is Malchus. And, and I mentioned one of the reasons for this might have been that John, um, being his gospel being likely the last gospel written and, and, and much later, it's written likely after Peter had died. And so there was no need to protect Peter from danger, from the danger that might have come from naming him as the person who did this. This is also one of the reasons that most believe that John's gospel is the only one to tell us about Lazarus and that whole story about Jesus raising him from the dead. Um, Jesus had raised Lazarus, which enraged the Jewish leaders and, and caused them to want to kill Lazarus as well as Jesus. And so John wrote this much later, and this wouldn't have been a problem by this point because likely Lazarus also had, had likely died at this point. One thing that we didn't look at last week was a detail that John left out of this account of Jesus' arrest, which is Judas's kiss. And skeptics have used um, these differences, differences like this, to say that this is proof that this is all made up and this never really happened. But the other three Gospels do mention Judas's kiss. John must have felt by this time, the time that he wrote his Gospel, that Jesus, the events of Jesus' life were so well known to the church at this point, especially the end of his life, his crucifixion, his arrest, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. He must have felt that it was so well known that he could focus on other details uh, that the, the gospel writers, the other gospel writers, did not include. But doesn't leaving out Judas's kiss leave out a big part of 
Jesus's arrest? And I would say, not really. I mean, again, the other, the other gospels all mention it. And so it was already a documented part of this account. John is just adding to those accounts. He's not denying that Judas didn't kiss Jesus when he leaves it out of his, his account, but his emphasis is, is on the moment when Jesus steps forward and identifies himself. And when you read all of the accounts together, when you line them up, that makes sense. Even though Jesus steps forward and speaks up, uh, um, they still wouldn't have known who he was. It could have been another disciple pretending to be him stepping forward. They wouldn't have known that. And so they still would have needed Judas to point out who the real Jesus was. And so John is adding to the narrative. John knew that Judas had pointed out Jesus with a kiss, but he didn't feel the need to mention it. Again, that wasn't his emphasis. I recommended this book last week, but I'll recommend it again. It's called A Harmony of the Gospels. It's a book that lines up the gospel narrative, um, all of the gospels, with each other. So it takes all the different stories and puts them side by side so you can see the different details that each of them have. It's, it's really interesting to read them like that, and so that's why I recommend that. It's interesting to see how they complement each other. And I think it's important for us as Christians to wrestle through some of these things, some of these things that skeptics jump on. We need to have answers, not just for the skeptics, but for ourselves. How can we grow in our faith, right, and, and our confidence in God's Word if we're not working through God's Word, working through some of these things that people criticize? And in the library, in our library in the back there, it's a small library, but there's some good uh, apologetics books. If you don't know what that means, apologetics just means defending something. And so Christian apologetics means to defend the faith. We need to wrestle through some of these questions, like I said, that unbelievers may have. um, And we need to learn how to defend our faith. I think that's a big part of the McKenzie's missional family. Um, their small group is wrestling through some tough questions and trying to, trying to discuss it and work, work those things out. And so that's a plug for their group on Tuesday nights. But um, there's also great YouTube videos. Uh, if you type in Christian apologetics, videos by people like William Lane Craig. He's, a, he's an apologist, so somebody that that's his job. Um, You can search his name as well. He has some great videos that answer really tough questions. Um, There's just a ton of resources out there, and we need to be educating ourselves. 1 Peter 3, verse 15 actually commands us to. It says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. If someone comes at you because of your faith, it's always a lot easier to make a defense with gentleness and respect if you're prepared, right? If we're not prepared, what happens? We usually get flustered, maybe angry, maybe emotional, and we are commanded to be prepared. And so that's my challenge to you right off the bat this morning is to educate yourself to be prepared, 
Anyway, that was a long-winded way to introduce uh, what we're going to next and what we looked at last week. Jesus says to Peter in verse, what Jesus says to Peter in verse 11 kind of sums up where we're headed, what's about to happen. He says to Peter at the, at the end of that arrest section in verse 11, put your sword into its sheath. Peter had just, you know, cut off that guy's ear, Malchus's ear. Put your sword in its sheath, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus wrestled in prayer in Gethsemane. He wrestled with the weight of what lay ahead of him. Not only the suffering, but the burden of sin that would be placed on him. And we know that from several passages. This is one of them. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In the garden, what was before Jesus weighed on him, and yet he ends his prayer with not as I will, but as you will. And in verse 11 of John chapter 18, Jesus acknowledges this submission to the Father. Peter, put your sword away. We're not going to fight this. This is the Father's will. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me, he says. And so this is where we pick up in chapter 18, verse 12. And it says, so, so the band of soldiers and their captain and the officer, officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Verse 13, first they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Why did they take him to Annas? Annas had actually been the high priest from 6 AD to 15 AD. And, and then he was removed from the office and replaced. Rome didn't want any of the Jews to be in power for too long. And so they had a habit of removing people and replacing people whenever they felt like it. In Judaism, however, once you were anointed to be high priest, you were high priest for life. And so Annas, while he was still alive, was recognized as the high priest. And interestingly, five of Annas's sons succeed him as high priest. His family was a powerful family. And Caiaphas, who we just heard about, was his son-in-law and, and also succeeds him. And so Caiaphas was the ruling high priest at this time. But Annas, his father-in-law, was the power behind Caiaphas. This is why Jesus is first taken to Annas. And then John reminds us in verse 14, he says, It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Remember back to chapter 11, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead? There are some in the crowd who witness this and then go and report it to the Pharisees. And then the Pharisees call a meeting of the council. And in verse 47, this council, these Jewish leaders say, what are we going to do? What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So we can see from what their response is that they're more concerned about their positions, their status, 
and the stability of their country than the possibility that this might be the Messiah. Um, Many recognize Jesus as a rabbi and a prophet. He's been teaching the scripture and performing miracles. He's just raised somebody from the dead. But they're more concerned about losing their positions than they are about figuring out if he's really come from God, from the Father. And I guess in their pride, they've already decided that he's not. He hasn't come from God, that he's not the Messiah. Because Jesus has been very, very, very critical of these Jewish leaders. Openly critical. But while they're asking what they should do in this passage, Caiaphas speaks up. And he says in verse 49, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And then John comments in verse 51, he says, He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not only for the not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. It's so interesting that even though Caiaphas is in the wrong and clearly not motivated by seeking the true will of God, it's interesting that he has the gift of prophecy. I assume because of his role as high priest. But even though this prophecy comes from God, as all true prophecy does, he doesn't know how to interpret it. He feels that they, the Jewish leaders, need to fulfill this prophecy. And so it says they made plants, from that day, they made plants to put him to death. Back to John chapter 18, Jesus is taken to Annas. And verse 15 says, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. Most scholars believe that this other disciple was actually John. John had a had a tendency to not name himself throughout his gospel. Uh, many times he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And this was not to say that of course that Jesus didn't love the other disciples, but that Jesus and John had a special relationship different from from the other disciples. John was the youngest disciple, and so it's likely that Jesus took him under his wing. In fact, there there are a few instances that support this. First, I think I mentioned this last week, Jesus had more than 12 disciples. There were a group of disciples, men and women, who followed Jesus and traveled with him. And we know this from a few different passages. One of the passages One of the passages actually names these these women that are with him, that are his disciples. In Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, it says, Soon afterward, he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. 
Bora always tells me that I have way too many verses to support one point, so I'm just going to put up some other verses that refer to, to Jesus uh, traveling with more than 12 disciples. And if you're interested, you can look these up. But anyway, he had this group of disciples with him, and then he had the 12, his inner circle uh, that he was training to become the leaders of the church when he left them. And then within this inner circle of 12, he had an inner, inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John. And these three were the only disciples present when Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. They were the only disciples to witness the transfiguration of Jesus. And they were the three disciples that Jesus asked to accompany him in the Garden of Gethsemane when he went to go and pray. He wanted them to accompany him and keep watch. And so John is one of these three closest disciples that Jesus pours into in an even deeper way than the other 12. John isn't bragging when he refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. It's out of gratitude for being being able to serve and learn from the Messiah. And it's a recognition that the most important thing in his life was being not by being identified by his own name, but being identified as a person who Jesus loved. At, at the end of John's gospel, he, he identifies himself as this person, as the person he's been referring to throughout his gospel as the person whom Jesus loved. And I'll just go there really quick in John 21. Peter, it says, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. And then I'll skip ahead to verse 21. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And then skipping to verse 24. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has, <clears throat> excuse me, who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Anyway, that's a long-winded way of pointing out that most believe that this unnamed disciple who is known by the high priest is John. We don't know how John had this connection. John may have been a fisherman, but we know from Mark chapter 1, verse 20, that his father was wealthy enough to have hired men. And so that may have been the connection. Some have tried to find a connection through his family to the high priest. I think the close connection with Peter and the fact that John doesn't like to name himself is enough of a reason for us to assume that it's him. But moving on, verse 16, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. Although we know that Peter denying Jesus is wrong, we can kind of understand the situation. This is a small courtyard some of the officers and servants that had just arrested Jesus in Gethsemane 
are probably here. Some of them might recognize Peter as the one who cut off Malchus's ear. And so he was likely in danger of being arrested. This isn't an excuse, of course, for Peter's denial of Jesus, but we can see his motivation. We can see the reason for his fear. Jesus has predicted Peter's denial. Jesus not only knew what was coming for himself, he knew what the response of his disciples was going to be. And John weaves Peter's denial between what's going on with Jesus. And so, excuse me, in verse 19, we're back to the hearing. And it says, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. In a proper Jewish trial, the judge would not be the one to question the witness or the accused. He would bring witnesses to stand and, and who would testify about the wrongdoing of the accused. If two or more of these witnesses or these testimonies of these witnesses were the same, then the accused was proclaimed guilty. But this is not a real trial. And Jesus points this out in verse 20. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When Jesus asks why they are asking him and not asking witnesses that were present during his teaching, what he's really asking is why are they not conducting a real trial? He's never been secretive about his teaching. He's been public even of his criticisms of these Jewish leaders. And so if they are accusing him of something, there needs to be witnesses which means he should have a fair trial. Annas is trying to accuse him of being a false prophet because the punishment for being a false prophet is death. And this is what they want. They want Jesus killed. And so Annas is asking about his teaching, possibly trying to get him to slip up so that they can bring a charge against him. Jesus calls out their intentions. This is not a fair trial. This is not even a formal trial, and he calls them out on it. Jesus did not accept, or sorry, Jesus did accept all that was happening and was about to happen. He told the Father, not my will, but your will be done. He told Peter that he must drink the cup, and so we know that he's humbled himself and accepted what's coming. But though Jesus had humbled himself, and accepted the cup of suffering that is coming, he's not going to let these leaders get away with this without challenging them. That's why the officer strikes him in verse 22. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus is challenging Annas and the other leaders. Notice that the officer calls Annas the high priest. Again, Annas still had this title of high priest, even though the Romans had removed him from that office. Anyway, Jesus challenges them on what's going on here. This is not Jewish procedure for prosecuting someone. And then in verse 23, he even calls out the officer that has struck him. 
Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? We saw last week that Jesus was actually in charge of his own arrest, asking who they were looking for, stepping forward and identifying himself, telling them to let his disciples go, and then shutting Peter down when he tries to fight. Now, in this mock trial, Jesus stands his ground and continues to demonstrate authority. He will not be intimidated by the Jewish leaders. Again, he may be humbly accepting his fate, but he's not going to let their actions be unquestioned. They know what they're doing is questionable. This hearing or session or kangaroo court or whatever it is, is taking place in the middle of the night. The Jewish leaders know full well that this is not the proper way to try and judge an accused criminal. And they know full well that there's nothing to fairly accuse him of. And so in verse 24, it says, Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Although there's nothing to properly accuse Jesus of at this point, that doesn't mean they're going to give up. There's another illegal trial being prepared for Jesus by the acting high priest, Caiaphas. John doesn't actually give an account of this trial like the other gospels do. Again, um, the reason for this is probably that he knows the other gospels have already written this down. John has a different emphasis here. He's trying to make a, a point here with this narrative to draw something out that may have been missed in the other Gospels. John weaves Peter's denial of Jesus with Jesus denying nothing. Jesus faces his accusers honestly and unashamedly, whereas Peter caves each time he's called out. John is purposely making a statement here. Jesus is our greatest example. Peter declared in chapter 13 that he would lay his life down for Jesus. And yet in his own strength, he fails the test of acknowledging that he is with Jesus. Not only with Jesus, but one of the 12 closest disciples. And not only one of the 12, but one of the three in the inner, inner circle one of Jesus' very closest disciples. And John doesn't need, us, need to tell us what Peter does next. The, the other disciples tell us Peter's despair. So I'll turn to Luke 22, and we'll see what happens. John doesn't record this, but Luke does. It says, And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Peter must have been able to see some of what was going on um, in Jesus' hearing from where he stood in the courtyard. And when Jesus looks at him after denying him three times, Peter suddenly remembers what Jesus had said. Remember, when Jesus had told his disciples back in chapter 13, this is during the Last Supper, that he was going away and that the disciples could not follow him now. 
but that they but later on they would follow him he says he's talking about his return to the father and peter could not understand uh, what jesus was saying and in verse 37 he says lord why can i not follow you now i will lay down my life for you peter is confident in his devotion to follow jesus but this is peter who this is the peter who has not yet received the Holy Spirit. Peter is confident in him, himself, in his own ability, but Jesus knows that there's still plenty for him to learn. And Jesus calls him out in verse 38. He says, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And when we went through that passage um, all those months ago, we talked about how shocking this must have been for Peter. How embarrassing in front of the other disciples and how he may have even been hurt. He, he likely was hurt. But Jesus knew what was coming and he tells Peter honestly and directly. He's not trying to embarrass Peter, but I think he's trying to show him that he's not as strong as he thinks he is. He's still got a lot to learn and he's still got a lot to surrender. We know that Peter is willing to lay down his life for Jesus. In Gethsemane at Jesus' rest, he's swinging his sword, not very successfully, I might add, but he's swinging his sword to defend Jesus. And he's, re re he's rebuked by Jesus there too. Jesus wasn't trying to escape arrest, and if Peter was paying attention, he would have seen this. Peter's more than willing to defend Jesus when he's standing next to him, side by side. But here in this courtyard, he's by himself. Um, I assume because John knew the high priest, he was closer to, closer to Jesus' actual hearing, whereas Peter is on his own in the courtyard. And so we see a Peter who is on his own, who again has not received the Holy Spirit and who's afraid. He doesn't understand that this is actually the Father's will. This is the plan for Jesus to be unfairly tried and executed. This is a crisis for Peter. He's followed Jesus these past three years because he believed that he was the Messiah. He believed Jesus as Messiah would become king of Israel. But in Peter's mind, this isn't going to happen if the Jewish leaders are able to have Jesus executed. Peter must have carried the weight of betraying his master through these next few days. It must have been excruciating for him because he watches Jesus on the cross. He watches Jesus die. He not only loses all hope for the future that he has imagined, this future as, as G, with Jesus as king, but he loses his master and his friend. And he watches as Jesus hangs there on the cross, carrying this shame and this guilt because he's denied even knowing Jesus. Like Peter, we, we also can be tempted if we're honest, there are times when we are also tempted to deny our Lord. 
There's not too many times, if ever, that we in rich nations, um, the rich nations that we live in, have our lives threatened because of our faith. That doesn't happen very often. It's more of a threat of maybe losing social standing or at worst, may, maybe losing our job. But this can be a temptation for us as well. Maybe though, it isn't just a temptation for you. Maybe you have given into that temptation. And out of fear, you have downplayed your faith or, or denied it altogether. But I want to tell you this morning that Peter found forgiveness and we can find forgiveness too. After Jesus' resurrection in John 21, Jesus asks Peter three times if he loves him. And that's a fitting number because Jesus, or Peter denied Jesus three times. And each time Jesus asks this, Peter replies, yes, you know that I love you. And each time Peter replies, Jesus gives him a charge. Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. And then he ends by saying, follow me. Many see this as Jesus reinstating Peter as a disciple. I don't know if he ever stopped being a disciple. Peter was brash. He was unfiltered. He was an act-before-thinking kind of guy. He was a fisherman, a sailor, a rough working-class man. But Jesus loved him and called him to follow, and, and Jesus forgave him. He already knew what Peter was going to do, and he doesn't cast him aside. He calls him to greater faith. He calls him to lead. I mentioned this, bef this was before Peter receives the Holy Spirit. When he does receive the Holy Spirit, we see a man on fire for the Lord. He becomes a wise and faithful follower of Jesus and, and one of the key leaders of the early church. He's still not perfect. We see him mess up in Galatians 2. Paul calls him out for ignoring the Gentile believers um, and not eating with them. And so Peter continues to learn and to grow throughout his life. But there is a marked change when he receives the Holy Spirit. And we all here have the Holy Spirit. If we've accepted Jesus as our Savior, if we've placed our faith in him, we have received that same spirit that opened Peter's mind to the truth and gave him the courage and the boldness to stand up and speak the truth, to preach and proclaim Jesus. And so I challenge you this morning to share your faith, to, to not be ashamed or afraid to tell those around you about such an important part of your life. Jesus is our whole life. He's our purpose and our hope. And at the beginning of this, this message, I challenged you to be prepared to answer questions that people have about our faith. If we don't know how to do that, the temptation to deny Jesus or to brush off our faith is even greater because we don't know what to say. So again, I challenge you to educate yourself. Make time to find answers. And as we study the Bible more and more, as we jot down questions as we're reading the Bible, as we're reading God's Word, and then we find answers to those questions, we will be more prepared. And something we need to understand is 
that this isn't really optional. We're com- again, we're commanded to do this. In 1 Peter, I'll read it again. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. What is the reason for your hope? Have you wrestled with that? At the beginning of the year, we gave away these journals. And if you guys haven't got one yet, please come up and grab one. There's still a bunch of them left. Um, But journaling and writing down questions and finding answers is one of the ways that we educate ourselves. And one of the ways that we wrestle through some of these deep, difficult questions that are not always easy to answer in the Bible. And so please grab one of these if you haven't already. They're, they're right up here. But I just want to um, encourage you guys to, to be meeting together, to have discussions together, to wrestle through these things, to wrestle through questions that other people have about our faith, that, that we ourselves have when we're reading God's Word, um, when we're reading the things that He teaches us. Amen? Let's pray.